Chapter Twenty Five of The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter Twenty Five. With these seven pupils, Ellis, combating the various unpleasant feelings that were occasionally excited, prosperously began her new career. Her spirits, from the fullness of her occupations, revived, and she soon grew a stranger to the depression of that ruminating leisure which is wasted in regret, in repining, or in wavering meditation. Miss Arb reaped, also, the fruits of her successful manoeuvres, by receiving long and almost daily instructions, under the pretence of trying different compositions, though never under the appellation of lessons, nor with the smallest acknowledgment of any deficiency that might require improvement, always when they separated, exclaiming, "'What a delightful musical regal we have enjoyed this morning!' So sincere, nevertheless, was the sense which Ellis entertained of the essential obligations which she owed to Miss Arab, that she suffered this continual intrusion and fatigue without a murmur. Miss Bidle also, who was nearly as frequent in her visits as Miss Arab, claimed constantly, however vainly, in return for paying the month's hire of the harp, the private history of the way of life, expenses, domestics, and apparent income, of every family to which that instrument was the means of introduction. And but that these ladies had personal engagements for their evenings, Ellis could not have found time to keep herself in such practice as her new profession required, and her credit, if not her scholars, might have been lost, through the selfishness of the very patronesses by whom they had been obtained. Another circumstance, also, somewhat disturbed, though she would not suffer it to interrupt, what she now deemed to be her professional study. She no sooner touched her harp than she heard a hurrying, though heavy step, descend the stairs, and never opened the door, after playing or singing, without perceiving a gentleman standing against it, in an attitude of listening. He hastened away ashamed upon her appearance, yet did not the less fail to be in waiting at her next performance. Displeased and nearly alarmed by the continual repetition of this curiosity, she complained of it to Miss Matson, desiring that she would find means to put an end to so strange a liberty. Miss Matson said that the person in question, who was a gentleman of very good character, though rather odd in his ways, had taken the little room which Ellis had just relinquished. She was sure, however, that he meant no harm, for he had often told her, as he passed through the shop, that he ought to pay double for his lodging, for the sake of hearing the harp and the singing. Miss Matson remonstrated with him, nevertheless, upon his indiscretion, in consequence of which he became more circumspect. From Selina, whose communications continued to be as unabated in openness as her friendship was in fondness, Ellis had the heartfelt satisfaction of receiving occasional intelligence, drawn from the letters of Mrs. Howell to Mrs. Maple, of the inviolable attachment of Lady Aurora Granville. 
She heard also, but nearly with indifference, that the two elder ladies had been furious with indignation, at the prosperity of the scheme of Miss Arbe, by which Ellis seemed to be naturalized at Brighthelmstone, where she was highly considered, and both visited and invited, by all who had elegance, sense, or taste to appreciate her merits. Of Elinor nothing was positively known, though some indirect information reached her aunt, that she had found means to return to the continent. About three weeks passed thus, in the diligent and successful practice of this new profession, when a morning concert was advertised at the new rooms for a blind Welsh harper, who was travelling through the principal towns of England. All the scholars of Ellis having, upon this occasion, taken tickets of Lady Kendover, who patronized the harper, Ellis meant to dedicate the leisure thus left her to musical studies. But she was broken in upon by Miss Bidle, who, possessing an odd ticket, and having, through some accident, missed joining her party, desired Ellis would immediately get ready to go with her to the concert. Ellis, not sorry to hear the harper, consented. The harper was in the midst of his last piece when they arrived. Miss Bidle, deaf to a general buzz of hush, at the loud voice with which, upon entering the room, she said, "'Well, now I must look about for some acquaintance,' straightly strutted on to the upper end of the apartment. Ellis quietly glided after her, concluding it to be a matter of course that they should keep together. Here, however, Miss Bidle comfortably arranged herself between Mrs. Maple and Selina, telling them that, having been too late for all her friends, and not liking to poke her way alone, she had been forced to make the young music-mistress come along with her, for company. Ellis, though both abashed and provoked, felt herself too justly under the protection of Miss Bidle, to submit to the mortification of turning back, as if she had been an unauthorized intruder though the averted looks, and her consciousness of the yet more disdainful opinions of Mrs. Maple, left her no hope of countenance, but through the kindness of Selina. She sought, therefore, the eyes of her young friend, and did not seek them in vain. But great was her surprise to meet them not merely unaccompanied by any expression of regard, but even of remembrance, and to see them instantaneously withdrawn, to be fixed upon those of Lady Barbara Frankland, which were wholly occupied by the blind harper. Disappointed and disconcerted, she was now obliged to seat herself, alone, upon a side form, and to strive to parry the awkwardness of her situation, by an appearance of absorbed attention to the performance of the harper. A gentleman, who was lounging upon a seat at some distance, struck by her beauty, and surprised by her lonely position, curiously loitered towards her, and dropped, as if accidentally, upon the same form. He was young, tall, handsome, and fashionable, but wore the air of a decided libertine, and her modest mien, and evident embarrassment, rendered her peculiarly attractive to a voluptuous man of pleasure. To discover, therefore, whether that modesty were artificial, or the remains of such original purity as he, and such as he, adore but to demolish, was his immediate determination. It was impossible for Ellis to escape seeing how completely she engrossed his attention, sedulously as she sought to employ her own another way. 
but having advanced too far into the room by following Miss Bidle, to descend without being recognised by those whose good opinion it was now her serious concern to preserve, all her scholars being assembled upon this occasion, she resolved to sustain her credit by openly joining, or at least closely following, Miss Bidle, when the concert should be over. When the concert, however, was over, her difficulties were but increased, for no one retired. Lady Kendover ordered tea for herself and her party, and the rest of the assembly eagerly formed itself into groups for a similar purpose. A mixed society is always jealous of its rights of equality, and any measure taken by a person of superior rank or superior fortune to the herd soon becomes general not humbly from an imitative, but proudly from a levelling spirit. The little coteries thus everywhere arranging made the forlorn situation of Ellis yet more conspicuous. All now, but herself, were either collected into sets to take tea, or dispersed for sauntering. She felt, therefore, so awkward that, hoping by a fair explanation to acquit herself to her scholars at their next lessons, she was rising to return alone to her lodging, when the gentleman already mentioned, planting himself abruptly before her, confidently inquired whether he could be of any service in seeing her out. She gravely pronounced a negative, and reseated herself. He made no attempt at conversation, but again took his place by her side. In the hope of lessening, in some degree, her embarrassment, Ellis, once more, sought the notice of Selina, whose behaviour appeared so extraordinary that she began to imagine herself mistaken in believing that she had yet been seen. But when, again, she caught the eye of that young lady, a low and respectful curtsey vainly solicited return, or notice. The eye looked another way, without seeming to have heeded the salutation. She grew now seriously apprehensive that some cruel calamity must have injured her in the opinion of her affectionate young friend. Her ruminations upon this unpleasant idea were interrupted by the approach of Mrs. and Miss Brinville, who, scornfully passing her, stopped before her lounging neighbour, to whom Mrs. Brinville said, do you take nothing, Sir Lyle? We are just going to make a little tea." Sir Lyle, looking negligently at Miss Brinville, and then, from her faded beauty, casting a glance of comparison at the blooming prime of the lovely unknown by his side, carelessly answered that he took tea but once in a day. Miss Brinville, though by no means aware of the full effect of such a contrast, had not failed to remark the direction of the wandering eye, nor to feel the waste and inadequacy of her best smiles to draw it back. She was compelled, however, to walk on, and Ellis now concluded that her bold and troublesome neighbour must be Sir Lyle Sycamore, who, seldom at home but to a given dinner, had never been present at any lesson of his sister's. The chagrin of being seen, and judged so unfavourably, by a friend of Lord Melbury, was a little softened by the hope that he would soon learn who she was from Miss Sycamore, and that accident, not choice, had placed her thus alone in a public room. Miss Brinville had not more keenly observed the admiring looks of Sir Lyle, than the baronet had remarked her own of haughty disdain for the same object. 
this confirmed his idea of the fragile character of his solitary beauty though while it fixed his pursuit it deterred him from manifesting his design his quietness however did not deceive ellis the admiration conveyed by his eyes was so wholly unmixed with respect that embarrassed and comfortless she knew not which way to turn her own mr tedman soon after perceiving her to be alone and unserved came with a good-humoured smirk upon his countenance to bring her a handful of cakes it was in vain that she declined them he placed them one by one till he had counted half a dozen upon the form by her side saying don't be so coy my dear don't be so coy young girls have appetites as well as old men for i don't find that that tootling does much for one's stomach and i promise you this cold february morning has served me for as good a wet as if i was an errand-boy up to this moment put in case i ever was one before which however is neither here nor there though you may as well he added lowering his voice and looking cautiously around not mention my happening to drop that word to my daughter for she has so many fine misses coming to see her that she got acquainted with at the boarding-school where i was over persuaded to put her for i might have set up a good smart shop for the money it cost me but she had a prodigious hankering after being teached dancing and the like and so now when they come to see us she wants to pass for as fine a toss-up as themselves and lock a daisy put in case i was to let the cat out of the bag steadily as ellis endeavoured to avoid looking either to the right or to the left she could not escape observing the surprise and aversion which this visit and whisper afforded to sir lyle yet the good humour of mr tedman and her conviction of the innocence of his kindness made it impossible for her to repulse him with anger advancing next his mouth close to her ear he said i should have been glad enough to have had you come and drink a cup of tea with i and my daughter i can tell you that only my daughter's always in such a fuss about what the quality will think of her else we are dull enough together only she and me for do what she will that quality don't much mind her so she's rather a bit in the sulks poor dear and at best she is but a so-so hand at the agreeable though indeed for the matter of that i am no rare one myself except with my particulars put in case i am then he now good-humouredly nodding begged her not to spare the cakes and promising she should have more if she were hungry returned to his daughter sir lyle with a scarcely stifled laugh and in a tone the most familiar inquired whether she wished for any further refreshment ellis looking away from him pronounced a repulsive negative an elderly gentleman who was walking up and down the room now bowed to her not knowing him she let his salutation pass apparently disregarded when some of her cakes accidentally falling from the form he eagerly picked them up saying as he grasped them in his hand faith madam you had better have eaten them at once you had faith few things are mended by delay we are all at our best at first these cakes are no more improved by being mottled with the dirt of the floor than a pretty woman is by being marked with the smallpox. I know nothing that isn't the worse for a put-off, unless it be a quarrel. Ellis, then, through his voice and language, discovered her fellow voyager, Mr. Riley, though a considerable change in his appearance from his travelling garb had prevented a more immediate recollection. 
additional disturbance now seized her, lest he should recur to the suspicious circumstances of her voyage and arrival. While he still stood before her, declaiming upon the squeezed cakes, which he held in his hand, Mr. Tedman, coming softly back, and gently pushing him aside, produced, with a self-pleased countenance, a small plate of bread and butter, saying, "'Look here, my dear, I brought you a few nice slices, for I see the misfortune that befell my cakes, of their falling down, and I resolved you should not be the worse for it. But I advise you to eat this at once, for fear of accidents. Only take care,' with a smile, "'that you don't grease your pretty fingers.' He did not smile singly. Sir Lyle more than bore him company, and Riley laughed aloud, saying, "'Twould be a pity indeed if she did not take care of her pretty fingers, twould, Faith, when she can work them so cunningly. I can't imagine how the lady could sit so patiently to hear that old Welshman thrum the cords in that bang-wang way, when she can touch them herself like a little Queen David, to put all one's feelings in a fever. I have listened at her door till I have tingled all over with heat in the midst of the hard frost.' and sometimes i have sat upon the stairs to hear her till i have been so bent double and numbed that my nose has almost joined my toes and you might have rolled me down to the landing-place without uncurbing me you might faith ellis now further discovered that mr riley was the listening new lodger her apprehensions however of his recollection subsided when she found him wholly unsuspicious that he had ever seen her before and called to mind her own personal disguise at their former meeting. Sir Lyle, picked to see her monopolized by two such frograms as he thought Messrs. Riley and Tedman, was bending forward to address her more freely himself, when Lady Barbara Frankland, suddenly perceiving her, flew to take her hand with the most cordial expressions of partial and affectionate regard. Sir Lyle Sycamore, after a moment of extreme surprise, combining this condescension with what Riley had said of her performance, surmised that his suspicious beauty must be the harp-mistress, who had been recommended to him by Miss Arb, who taught his sister, and whose various accomplishments had been extolled to him by Lord Melbury. That she should appear, and remain, thus strangely alone in public, marked her, nevertheless, in his opinion, as at least an easy prey, though her situation with regard to his sister, and a sense of decency with regard to her known protectors, made him instantly change his demeanour, and determined to desist from any obvious pursuit. Lady Barbara had no sooner returned to her aunt, than Sir Marmaduke Crawley, in the name of that lady, advanced with a request that Miss Ellis would be so obliging as to try the instrument of the Welsh harper. Though this message was sent by Lady Kendover in terms of perfect politeness, and delivered by Sir Marmaduke with the most scrupulous courtesy, it caused Ellis extreme disturbance, from her unconquerable repugnance to complying with her ladyship's desire. But, while she was entreating him to soften her refusal, by the most respectful expressions, his two sisters came hoidening up to her, charging him to take no denial, and protesting that they would either drag the Ellis to the harp, or the harp to the Ellis, if she stood dilly-dallying any longer, and then, each seizing her by an arm, without any regard to her supplications, or to the shock which they inflicted upon the nerves of their brother, they would have put their threat into immediate execution but for the weakness occasioned by their own immoderate laughter at their merry gambols which gave time for lady kendover to perceive the embarrassment and the struggles of ellis 
and to suffer her partial young admirer, Lady Barbara, to be the bearer of a civil apology, and the recantation of the request. To this commission of the well-bred aunt, the kind-hearted niece added a positive insistence, that Ellis should join their party, to which she rather drew than led her, seating her almost forcibly, next to herself, with exulting delight at rescuing her from the turbulent Miss Crawley's. Lady Kendover, to whom the exact gradations of etiquette were always present, sought, by a look, to intimate to her niece, that while the Honourable Miss Aramede was standing, this was not the place for Ellis. But the niece, natural, inconsiderate, and zealous, understood not the hint, and the timid embarrassment of Ellis showed so total a freedom from all obtrusive intentions, that her ladyship could not but forgive, however little she had desired the junction, and soon afterwards encouragingly led her to join both in the conversation and the breakfast. Selina now ran to shake hands with her dear Ellis, expressing the warmest pleasure at her sight. Ellis as much, though not as disagreeably surprised by her notice now, as she had been by the more than neglect which had preceded it, was hesitating what judgment to form of either, when Miss Sycamore, from some distance, scornfully called out to her, "'Don't fail to stop at our house on your way back to your lodgings, Miss Ellis, to look at my harp. I believe it's out of order.' Lady Kendover, whose invariable politeness made her peculiarly sensible of any failure of that quality in another, perceiving Ellis extremely disconcerted by the pointed malice of this humiliating command, at the moment that she was bearing her part in superior society, redoubled her own civilities, by attentions as marked and public as they were obliging, and, pleased by the modest gratitude with which they were received, had again restored the serenity of Ellis, when a conversation, unavoidably overheard, produced new disturbance. Mr. Riley, who had just recognized Ireton and Mrs. Maple, was loud in his satisfaction at again seeing two of his fellow voyagers, and, in his usually unceremonious manner, began discoursing upon their late dangers and escape, notwithstanding all the efforts of Mrs. Maple, who knew nothing of his birth, situation in life, or fortune, to keep him at a distance. "'And pray,' cried he, "'how does Miss Nelly do? She is a prodigious clever girl, she is faith. I took to her mightily, though I did not much like that twist she had got to the wrong side of my politics. I longed prodigiously to give her a twitch back to the right. But how could you think, ma'am, of taking over such a brisk, warm young girl as that, at the very instant when the new-fangled doctrines were beginning to ferment in every corner of France, boiling over in one half of their pates to scald the other half?' Mrs. Maple, however unwilling to hold a public conference with a person of whom she had never seen the pedigree, nor the rent-roll, could still less endure to let even a shadow of blame against herself pass unanswered. She therefore angrily said that she had travelled for health, and not to trouble herself about politics. "'Oh, as to you, ma'am, it's all one.' at your years. But how could you fancy a skittish young girl like that could be put into such a hotbed of wild plants, and not shoot forth a few twigs herself? I can't make out. You might as well send her to a dance, and tell her not to wag a foot. And pray what's become of Mr. Harley? I've nowhere seen his fellow. He was the most of a manly gentleman that ever fell in my walk. And your poor ailing mamma, Squire Ireton, has she got the better of her squeamish fits? She was juiced bad aboard.' 
and not much better ashore, and that demoiselle, the black-skinned girl with the fine eyes and nose, where's she, too? Have you ever heard what became of her?' Ellis, who every moment expected this question, had prepared herself to listen to it with apparent unconcern. But Selina, tittering, and again running up to her, and pinching her arm, asked whether it were not she that that droll man meant by the black-skinned girl. "'She was a good funny girl, Faith,' continued Riley. "'I was prodigiously diverted with her, yet we did nothing but quarrel, though I don't know why. But I could never find out who she was. I believe the devil himself could not have made her speak.' The continual little laughs of Selina, whom no supplications of Ellis could keep quiet, now attracted the notice of Lady Kendover, which so palpably increased the confusion of Ellis, that the attention of her ladyship was soon transferred to herself. "'She was but an odd fish, I believe, after all,' Riley went on. "'For one day, when I was sauntering along Oxford Street, whom should I meet but the noble admiral, the only one of our set I have seen till this moment since I left Dover?' And when we talked over our adventures, and I asked him if he knew anything of the demoiselle, how do you think she had served him? She's a comical hand, Faith, only guess. Ellis, now apprehensive of some strange attack, involuntarily looked at him, with as much amazement and attention, as he began to excite in all others who were near him, while Mrs. Maple, personally alarmed, demanded whether the Admiral had found out that any fraud had been practised upon him by that person. "'Fraud! Ay, fraud enough!' cried Riley. "'She chose him neatly out of the hire of her place in the diligence, besides that guinea that we all saw him give her.' Ellis now coloured deeply, and Ireton, heartily laughing, repeated the word, "'Choosed?' while Mrs. Maple, off all guard, looked fiercely at Ellis, and exclaimed, "'This is just what I have all along expected, and who can tell who else may have been pilfered? I protest I don't think myself safe yet.' This hasty speech raised a lively curiosity in all around, for all around had become listeners, from the loud voice of Riley, who now related that the Admiral, having paid the full fare for bringing the black-skinned girl to town, had called at the inn at which the stage puts up in London, to inquire, deeming her a stranger, whether she were safely arrived, and there he had been informed that she had never made use of her place. Ellis had no time to dwell upon the cruel but natural misconstruction, from the change of her plan, which had thus lost her the good opinion of the benevolent admiral. The speech which followed from Mrs. Maple was yet more terrific. "'I have not the least doubt, then,' said that lady, in a tone of mingled triumph and rage, "'that she put the money for her place into her pocket, as well as the guinea, while she wheedled Mrs. Ireton into bringing her up to town gratis, for I was all along sure she was an adventurer and an impostor, with her blacks and her whites and her double face.' She stopped abruptly recollecting the censure to which anger and self-importance were leading her, of having introduced into society a creature of whom, from the origin of any knowledge of her, she had conceived so ill an opinion. But while the various changes of complexion, produced in Ellis by this oration, were silently marked by Lady Kendover, and drew from Lady Barbara the most affectionate inquiries whether she were indisposed, the Miss Crawleys, who heard all that passed with their customary search of mirth, whether flowing from the ridiculous, the singular, or the mischievous, 
now clamorously demanded what Mrs. Maple meant by the double face, the blacks, and the whites. "'Oh, no matter,' answered Mrs. Maple, stammering. "'Tis not a thing worth talking of.' "'But the blacks, and the whites, and the double face?' cried Miss Crawley. "'Aye, the double face, the blacks, and the whites?' cried Miss Dye. "'The blacks,' said Mr. Riley, "'I understand well enough.' but I remember nothing about the double face. Surely the demoiselle could not hodgepodge herself into one of the whites. What do you mean by all that, ma'am?' "'Pray ask me nothing about the matter,' replied Mrs. Maple, impatiently. "'I am not at all accustomed to talk of people of that sort.' "'Why, how's all this?' cried Riley. "'Have any of you met with the demoiselle again?' Mrs. Maple would not deign to make any further reply. He addressed himself to Ireton who only laughed. "'Well, this is droll enough. It is faith. I begin to think the demoiselle has appeared amongst you again. I wish you'd tell me, for I should like to see her of all things, for old acquaintance' sake. She was but a dowdy piece of goods, to be sure, but she had fine eyes and a fine nose, and she amused me prodigiously. She was so devilish shy.' "'You believe, then,' said Ireton, excited, not checked by the palpable uneasiness of Ellis, "'that if you saw her again you should know her.' No, the demoiselle, I from an hundred, with her beautiful black marks and insignia of the order of fisticuffs. Look for her, then, man, look for her. I shall want small compulsion for that, I promise you, but where am I to look? Is she here? Ireton nodded. Nay, then, Master Ireton, since you bid me look, lend me at least some sort of spectacles that may help me see through a mask, for I am sure if she be here she must wear one. Are you sure that, if you should see her without one, you should not mistake her? Yes, faith, I am. What will you bet upon it? What you will, Squire Ireton, a guinea to a half-crown. Mrs. Maple, alarmed now, for her own credit, desired Ireton to inquire whether her carriage were ready. But Ireton, urged by an unmeaning love of mischief, which ordinarily forms a large portion of the common cast of no character, would not rest till he had engaged Riley in a wager, that he could make him look his demoiselle full in the face, without recollecting her. Riley said that he should examine every lady, now, one by one, and take special note that she wore her own natural visage. He began with the jocund Miss Crawleys, whose familiar gaiety, which deemed nothing indecorous that afforded them sport, encouraged him, by its flippant enjoyment, to proceed to others. But he no sooner advanced to Ellis than she turned from his investigation, in so much disorder, that her kind young friend, Lady Barbara, inquired what was the matter. She endeavoured to control her alarm, cheerfully answering that she was well, but Riley no sooner caught the sound of her voice than, riotously clapping his hands, he exclaimed, "'Tis the demoiselle! Faith, tis the demoiselle herself! That's her voice!' and those are her eyes, and there's her nose. It's she, Faith. And so here are the whites and the double face." A laugh from Ireton confirmed his suggestion, while the change of countenance in Ellis satisfied all who could see her, that some discovery was made, or impending, which she earnestly wished to conceal. Mrs. Maple, scarcely less disconcerted than herself, inquired again for her carriage. "'Faith, this is droll enough. It is faith,' cried Riley, when his first transport of surprise subsided. 
So the demoiselle is a beauty, after all, and the finest harp-player to boot on this side King David. Ellis, dreadfully distressed, silently bowed down her head. "'I should like to have a model of her face,' continued Riley, "'to find out how it's done, what a fine fortune she may rise if she will take up a patent for beauty-making. I know many a dowager that would give half she is worth for the secret. I should think you would not be sorry yourself, Mrs. Maple, to have a little touch of the art. It would not do you much harm, I can tell you, ma'am.' The scornful looks of Mrs. Maple alone announced that she heard him and the disturbed ones of Ellis made the same confession, but both were equally mute. "'You'll pay for your sport, I can tell you, Master Ireton,' Riley triumphantly went on, "'for I shall claim my wager. But pray, demoiselle, what's become of all those plasters and patches, as well as the black coat over the skin? One could see nothing but eyes and nose. And very handsome eyes and nose they are. I don't know that I ever saw finer, I don't faith.' However, ladies, you need none of you despair of turning out beauties, in the long run, if she'll lend you a hand, for the ugliest signora among you, in so frightful as poor demoiselle was when we first saw her, with her bruises and scars and bandages. Overwhelmed with shame at this disgraceful, and, in public, unanswerable attack, Ellis, utterly confounded, was painfully revolving in her mind what vindication she might venture to offer and whether it were better to speak at once, or afterwards, and individually, when, at the intimation of these deceits and disguises, the whole party turned towards her with alarmed and suspicious looks, and then abruptly arose to depart, Lady Kendover taking the hand of her young niece, who still would have fondled Ellis, leading the way. Miss Arb alone, of all the society to which Ellis was known, personally fearing to lose her useful mistress, ventured to whisper, "'Good morning, Miss Ellis. I'll call upon you to-morrow.' While all others, with cast-up eyes and hands, hurried off, as if contagion were in her vicinity. Riley, claiming his wager, followed Ireton. Petrified at her own situation, Ellis remained immovable, till she was roused from her consternation by a familiar offer from Sir Lyle Sycamore, to attend her home. Fearful of fresh offence, she recovered from her dismay to rise, but when she saw that the bold baronet was fixed to accompany her, the dread of such an appearance to any one that she might meet, after the disastrous scene in which she had been engaged, frightened her into again sitting down. Sir Lyle stood, or sauntered before her, meaning to mark her, to the gentleman who still lingered, observant and curious, in the room, as his property, till Mr. Tedman, coming back from an inner apartment, begged, in the civilest manner, leave to pass, and carry a glass of white wine negus to the young music-player, which he had saved out of a bowl that he had been making for himself. "'Oh, by all manner of means, sir,' cried Sir Lyle, sneeringly giving way, "'pray don't let me mar your generosity.' Ellis declined the negus but, rejoicing in any safe and honest protection, entreated that Mr. Tedman would have the goodness to order one of his servants to see her home. Sir Lyle, sneeringly, and again placing himself before her, demanded to play the part of the domestic, and Mr. Tedman, extremely disconcerted, as well as disappointed by the rejection of his negus, hung back ashamed. Ellis now, feeling a call for the most spirited exertion to rescue herself from this impertinence, 
begged Mr. Tedman to stop, and then, addressing the young baronet with dignity, said, "'If, as I believe, I have the honour of speaking to Sir Lyle Sycamore, he will rather, I trust, thank me than be offended, that I take the liberty to assure him that he will gratify the sister of his friend, gratify Lady Aurora Granville, by securing me from being molested.' Had she named Lord Melbury, the ready suspicions of libertinism would but have added to the familiarity of the baronet's pursuit. But the mention of Lady Aurora Granville startled him into respect, and he involuntarily bowed, as he made way for her to proceed. She then eagerly followed Mr. Tedman out of the room, while Sir Lyle merely vented his spleen, by joining some of his remaining companions, in a hearty laugh, at the manners, the dress, the age, and the liberality of her chosen esquire. End of chapter 25 Recording by Roxana Nazari